but when, when Riley and I go out, he will always express, I'm sorry I'm not there, but we know he's traveling and doing uh, work on behalf of the church and certainly appreciate your work for us. Uh, it is exciting times. We are, uh, uh, you've heard me say this before, but we really are <laughs> so, so close to realizing this goal and dream. And in some ways, uh, we can make uh, all of our efforts and intentions about a building. But as you had heard, and I appreciated the way that Riley shared this, we have a vision that extends beyond ourselves. I've heard that certain indigenous tribes here in Canada, when they think uh, and make certain decisions within their communities, they ask what will have an impact on the next seven generations. And there's a sense in which uh, the things we do, we do not only do for ourselves. We do this because we want to pass on our faith well. We want to be a witness to God beyond our lifetime if the Lord Jesus Christ has not returned. And uh, when I stand before you, I stand before you, as many of you seated here, as a person of faith who have stood, uh, who have stood in the privilege that has been afforded me through the faithfulness and the sacrifice of others. And for this, I give God thanks. Uh, I want to express my gratitude to you as a church for your faithful giving. And though we are a church that does not harp on giving, I hope you never feel that way, that we're always coming after your pocketbook. I think it's Wesley who said the first thing people take is their wallet. And the last thing they give is their wallet. But certainly within our church, there's been a faithfulness and a stewardship, not only of finances, but of giving in various ways. And for this, we give God thanks. The building we build serves the purposes of the church that is. And we are the church today. And we are called to the word of God this morning. I may feel a little restricted with this microphone, but we're going to give it a shot. So if my sermon is not as up to its A-plus level, blame the microphone this morning. Uh, a few years ago now, I've started to feel a real sense of... Um, tension in my own heart uh, as I uh, paid closer attention to the challenges that we are facing with growing diversity within our communities, within our country, within the West, uh, the recent um, uh, policies and decisions and political happenings in different parts of our world would indicate that we live at a time in which we cannot ignore the fact that our world is a different place than it ever has been in history. There seems to be a fear of people who are unlike us, and there seems to be a labeling of people in such a way as to define people as being beyond the mercy of God, or perhaps in some ways they are not like us, and therefore they cannot be as we are in our own world. And there's a particular perspective that the Bible holds towards others, a perspective that finds its origins in the Old Testament. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to present to you through uh, the Word of God a, a biblical perspective of what it means to be a kingdom people in a diverse world, what it means to be a church in a world that is changing in our lifetime, what it means to confront our own prejudice, and what it means to remain faithful to the gospel message and hope. What it means to recognize that the gospel is not something that seeks to exclude others from our lives, but it is in fact something that compels us to live in proper relationship with the Lord and with our fellow man. And so this morning, I want to start off gently, can I, with a wonderful biblical story from Jonah. 
if there is a top story in Sunday school lesson curriculum and flannel graph depictions, it is Jonah. A fantastical story, of course, of a wayward prophet of Israel who, despite God's command to go and tell the people of Nineveh that they must repent, decides to flee in the opposite direction to Tarshish. And so I want to read this familiar story and invite you into a deeper reflection than perhaps our flannel graph memories give us. Hear the word of the Lord, Jonah 3, 10, reading to 4, 11. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord... (laughs) Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Isn't this a humorous story? But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. (laughs) And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And also many animals. This is the word of the Lord. The prophetic book of Jonah is a small yet provocative story, isn't it? In the Old Testament. A story that, as I said, made it into veggie tales. And if you make it to veggie tales, you're a good story. I can't remember exactly how the song goes, but something like Jonah was a prophet. And then... But he really didn't like it. Something like that. But it was catchy. Uh, The story, of course, has been uh, disputed by biblical historians and scholars as to whether it's actual history or whether it is fiction. Uh, The reason for this is that uh, some scholars suggest Jonah could function much like a parable. It could have a moral truth, but it does not actually have to have historically happened to be true. 
So there was, and there still is, discussions and concerns and questions about the historicity of Jonah. Is it an actual story? The reason, of course, is very clear, isn't it? I mean, a fish swallows Jonah, and he has a prayer meeting inside this fish, and he is spewed from this fish onto the shore. It sounds, the thi- it sounds like the things of fiction. And yet there seems to be a, an argument made in Jesus himself for the historicity of Jonah. Jesus is the one who, when the Pharisees asked him for a sign, referred to this particular experience of Jonah. Uh, In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we read that when the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a, and this is the translation in the New Testament, sea monster, sounds a little bit more you know, eerie than fish. So for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Jesus compares Jonah's belly experience in the fish to his death and to his resurrection. And then Jesus goes further and he says this, the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah once he emerged from the belly of the fish. And see, someone greater than Jonah is here, says Jesus. But what is the story really about? What is Jonah really about? When I used to hear it as a a Sunday school boy, I was was enamored by the story. I thought it must have been really fun to be in the belly of a fish. Is the story about forgiveness and repentance? Is it about disobedience and the consequences of not following the commands of God? You may end up in the gut of a fish. Is this a story about one person's resistance to the command of God, or is there more to Jonah than meets the eye? You see, I think that when Jesus responds to the Pharisees and uh, these religious leaders who were uh, the elite of Israel, he is He is telling us something about the significance of what happened in Jonah that often is missed. I think Jesus is telling Israel that what God did through Jonah for Nineveh is reflective of who he truly is. That in fact, when Jesus quotes Jonah, just stay with me for a little while, hopefully it get better. Jesus is teaching Israel what it means to know God and to live as God wants them to live. So our text this morning is located at the conclusion of the book. Jonah, after being commanded to go to Nineveh, flees in the opposite direction. I think it's true sometimes that when God calls people to do hard things, go to hard places, or have hard conversations, that it's easier to board a boat going in the opposite direction. We can resonate with Jonah at this point that God is calling him to go to a people who the Bible describes as wicked. Let me just give you some perspective in, in case you think Jonah is just being, you know, uh, to, you know, just snobby. He, he has good reason not to go. Nineveh, the capital city, or the last capital city of the Assyrians, the Assyrians were a bloodthirsty people. They would become very significant uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Israel's own experience. They would become enemies. 
But as he flees to Tarshish away from Nineveh, a storm arises. And when it comes to light that the reason the storm is happening is because Jonah is being disobedient. The sailors toss him over the boat and he's swallowed by the fish. He has this incredible prayer meeting in the belly of the fish. And if you study it closely, he He kind of prays, and it says it's a psalm of thanksgiving, but you don't get a real sense that Jonah's heart is changed. You know, Jonah just does not like the Ninevites. He can't stand them. In fact, this fish spews him out, and he travels to Nineveh, and reluctantly, you know, he stands there. VeggieTales doesn't capture this as well, I think, as the biblical text does. But he stands in front of these people, and he preaches the shortest message in the Old Testament and New Testament combined. In the Hebrew, he uses five words. In English, eight words. He says, listen, repent or judgment is coming. And he gets an incredible response. 120,000 people repent, including the king of Nineveh. Now, I have to pause here for a second as a side point. I want to be like Jonah in this one way. Brief with incredible results. And what is, is perhaps captivating about Jonah's story is, is that, that unlike Jeremiah who preached, this poor prophet of Israel, Jeremiah, preached day in and day out for the people to repent. And not one single soul responded to Jeremiah. But Jonah, just in five succinct words, gets 120,000 repentant souls at the altar. And what does he do? He does not celebrate he is angry and we are not left to wonder why Jonah is angry Jonah in his own words says it so well and so shockingly he says I knew I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And then he says, now take my life. You know, as I was thinking about this text and preaching on it, I started to feel a deep sadness. And there was moments which surprised me. You know, I do tend to cry even though I'm such a strapping, strong man and I tend to carry my heart on my sleeve, and you see it on Sundays, but this was not just me being soppy. You know, there was this moment as I read Jonah's response that I just teared up, and I was kind of confused. Uh, I always ask myself when I'm emotional whether I'm tired, because I link my emotions to my fatigue sometimes. I don't know if you like me. I cry really easy when I'm tired, uh, because I love sleep, and I need it. Uh, But I was well-rested when I looked at this text, and I and I felt this sense of discomfort with it because there's, there, 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 there is no prior ways of thinking of this like I would usually. You know, uh, Jonah has this understanding of Israel's God. He, he knows the heart of Israel's God. He gets who God is. You know, there, there is a clear sense in the text that he knows God is compassionate and slow to anger and merciful. In fact, what Jonah quotes in response to God's mercy and forgiveness is located right in Exodus when God gives the command to Israel, the stone tablets and the Ten Commands. Right, right there nestled in all of that, God says to him, for I am compassionate. 
compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Jonah knew the heart of God, but somehow, somehow, that knowledge did not make Jonah a compassionate and a merciful person. And it should perplex us. I'm reminded of a Old Testament or New Testament story in which a man who owed a king an inordinate amount of money that he could not possibly pay back in his entire life. And as he stood before the king and the king was about to imprison him and imprison his family and his livestock and whatever because he just owed so much, he pleads for mercy and the king extends the mercy to him. And as he leaves the king's palace there, he comes into contact with a friend of his who owes him a much less amount of debt. And he cannot find it in his heart to extend the mercy to this man and instead has his family thrown in prison. And the question that that parable ask of us is the same question that I began to ask of the text. How is it that a prophet of God, a man of Israel who is so familiar with the very heart and nature of God somehow is unable to exactly have what he knows to be true? It's perplexing that we can know something about God and still not have such knowledge be transformative in our relationships to the other. Now, don't get me wrong. I won't simplify that in such a way as to excuse the complexity of this. I mean, Nineveh would be a serious foe to Israel. You know, Jonah, 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 you know, he was looking at this. If I can put it in contemporary language to you, this is like him going into a, a foreign country in which because of who he was, he was at risk. This is not an easy calling. This is not something we should just simply say is Jonah's preference. There's enough reason for him to resist. But, but Jonah makes it very clear that the reason he does not want to go is because he does not want God's mercy to find these wicked people. He does not want God's grace to reach those whom he's determined are beyond his mercy and his scope. Jonah does not want the grace of God to come to those who, in Jonah's opinion, deserved the punishment that would come their way. Jonah refused to go, not because he knew the heart of God only, but because his prejudice towards those whom he's discerned are not worth saving made him leave and go to Tarshish. You know, Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 4 teaches what it means to be his follower. And he says this, you have heard said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And then get this. He says, be perfect there. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, here perfect does not mean pristine or without defect. It means be perfect in purpose. Be who God has called you to be. That in fact, to be the person of God that God has destined the church to be according to Jesus is to be a person that loves the enemy and prays even for those who persecute them. 
You see, the bar is so high and it's so difficult and it's so hard. And as I was talking to our group this morning, I said, I do not want to preach this as one who says Jonah is just terrible for what he did without recognizing that perhaps what the text most implies is that all of us, to some extent, join Jonah in his prejudice. How does that happen? The language that I've gotten used to hearing on the news, and my wife said to me at some point, she said, Stu, you need to stop watching the news. You look glum, you talk glum, you're negative. You know, watch some nice shows with me kind of thing. I won't tell you what kind of shows she watches, but it wasn't a compelling argument, to say the least. And I realized that the language I was hearing was talking a lot about the other, defining people in such absolute ways, in such absolute terms, in such definitive ways, that that it made it seem that there was those who were not in need of God's grace, for they in and of themselves are good people, and there are those who are just beyond what it means or what it could possibly mean to become a person of God. And as I read the text this morning to you, I think that I feel confessional. I sense that in the text itself, there is a conviction that comes to my own heart and in the form of who are those that I have written off, who are the people in my life or in the world that I feel is beyond the redemptive work of God. You see, because when we are not obedient to God um, and, and, and how he calls us to relate to others that are even our enemies, we actually determine who we truly are. You see, this story is not just about Jonah. It is about Israel who was to define themselves as God's covenant people. You know, it's very hard when God says to you, you're special for that speciality not to go to your head. It's very hard when God says, I want you to be different to other people because I don't want you to live as they live without that becoming a a means of judging and, and a means of excluding people. And yet God somehow says to Israel, I want you to belong to me, but I want you to be a light unto the world. I want you to know who you are in me, but I want you to be the people who bear my very witness in this world. I want you to know what it means to be holy, but I want your holiness not to keep you from my proclamation. I want you to belong, but I also want you to influence. You see, the heart of God for Israel is reflected in this particular text, and it comes through Jonah, where God says, don't accept your chosenness in such a way as to exclude other people from your life, even those whom you have written off. You see, Nineveh represents a sinful people. A people that Jonah has given up on. Or the people we have given up on. People whom we have written off. You see, uh, sometimes uh, I think when we paint ourselves all as, you know, we're right and everybody else is wrong, we miss that what actually makes us right is the grace of God that has saved us. 
And it is with that grace that we are anything that is pleasing to him. And it is that very same grace that should cause within us uh, the ability to look at people and not judge them. To look at people and not say that they are beyond God's redemptive ability and grace. Who are the people in our communities and in our world that we often say God may not be interested in? You see, the reason I I chose Jonah is because everybody kind of reads the Bible this way. Most people, most evangelicals, I think, they go, you know, the Old Testament has all the bad stuff, you know, but then the good comes in the New Testament. I I really wanted to point out a fact that from the beginning, from the inception, the creation, the formation of the people of Israel, God has always intended for them to be a light, a means of hope. To be chosen is not to be elite. To be chosen is to be chosen for purpose. It is to be chosen for witness. It is to be chosen for healing. It is to be chosen for revelation. It is to be chosen for hope. To be chosen is to have a courage to go where others say we should not go. It's to open our doors to absolutely everyone. Let me just be very, very frank with you. This text convicts more than it makes me feel excited to preach to you about because I realize how hard it is to love people who do not love me. Do you know, do you know that, that, that when Jesus quotes this particular thing, you know, you know, you know, tax collectors, they love other tax collectors, he says. You know, Skyview people love other Skyview people. Christian people love other Christian people. People who do the same things, believe the same things, can find it easy to get along with others. But I say to you, you want to be perfect as my Father is perfect. Love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wish there was an easier way to say that, but I can't. Jesus just kind of puts it out there. Let me tell you what it means to be chosen. Let me tell you what it means to be Christian. But Jonah is so self-righteous, isn't he? He comes across as a whiner. God forgives and Jonah becomes angry. Uh, God makes the shrub grow over his head and then when God creates a worm to eat the shrub, he becomes sad and he complains. It seems like everything for Jonah is about him. It's about me. It's about who I am and so very little about The heart of God for this great city. I I love the text. I want want to read it to you again. You know, Jesus says this. Should I not care? Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? You know, if I was to contextualize that for us, then I think the word comes to us this morning that God cares, yes, about Jonah, but oh, does he care about the people of this great city of Calgary? Does he care about the people of this great city of Calgary? Does he care about those who won't come through our doors and those who won't believe what we believe, those who may resist his word? You see, I don't think you can push the example of Jonah too far and say, if all we do is not be disobedient and go and proclaim, then everybody will repent and it will be peachy. I don't think that happens in life. I don't think that every time we proclaim or stand for truth or go to the other or share our life with people who are unlike us, that it results in such kind of salvation. But the calling of God for Jonah is secured in his heart. This is who God is, and we most represent him when we stand as he stands before others. Jonah is quick to become angry. But God is slow to anger. 
Jonah is quick to lack compassion. But God is abounding in compassion. Sometimes we find these kinds of sermons, I would presume, because I am always the one preaching and you're always the ones listening. I do invite you to speak to me if you have a calling to preach. Um, it's a wonderful calling. Uh, but you know, sometimes I, I, when I preach the word, I, I, I have to ask myself, how, how does Skyview hear this this morning? <laughs> do they hear it as stewards beating down on us again? Or do you hear what I think I'm trying to preach towards? The heart of God. For his people, yes. But also for the people in our world whom we know. You see, um, there is much... talk in Christian circles about who we are and what we don't do, and this is what we believe. But if we pay close attention to the New Testament witness and to the experience of Jonah, it seems that God says, people will most know that you are my disciples by how you love even the unlovable. Why are you so angry, Jonah? Why are you so self-righteous? Why are you unable to know the heart of uh, while you know the heart of God, why are you unable to represent his grace to others? You see, I wanted to uh, give some good answers to the questions I raised, but I thought as a good preacher, which I'm learning to become, hopefully. Um, we begin with a question that I think the text in Jonah leaves us asking. What is our response to the infinite mercy of God? What is our response to a God who is ready to forgive even when we are not? What is our response to a God who says, even those who I have seen become wicked will I extend my grace today? And it is on that note that I invite us to respond.